You are listening to the Robin of Sherwood podcast, season three, episode eight, The Betrayal. Hello everybody, thank you for tuning in to the only real podcast about the wonderful TV series Robin of Sherwood. My name is Sietse Wilman and I am joined today by Steph Woodhouse. So Steph, welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, uh, thanks for having me back. Can't believe it's um, episode 8 already. Yeah, it Move is. On. Yeah, we're slowing, uh, moving towards the end. I know, I can feel that sadness rising already. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Hey, but we still have a few interesting shows to go, so uh, that should be fun. Yeah. Um, so do you have any uh, particular feelings about uh, this one, the betrayal, before we uh, dive into it? <laughs> I do, and I think quite a few people who might know me in the fandom know that I am a bit of a champion for the betrayal. It is probably the episode that most people love to hate, but um, I'm a bit contrary um, as I've been in a few of um, the popular opinions about Robin Sherwood episodes, I really like it. There's lots of stuff that the betrayal isn't, lots of stuff it isn't, but for me there's lots of stuff it is as well, and we'll talk about that obviously, but yeah, I quite like it. What about you? What's your kind of general overview? I never really liked it, then I, uh, some time ago I rewatched it to prepare for the podcast, and I thought, well, it's, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's a bit better now, but not, not really, still not a big fan of it. Yeah, it's not classic Robin of Sherwood, but I think in the 13 series, um, episode series, you're going to have kind of peaks and troughs, and we've definitely had that with things like The Inheritance, and in the other series as well, you know, there's, there's Weecraft, Alan Dale, I'm saying nothing more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think um, this is one of those, but it's got some real gems in it, I think. Okay, so let's have a look at the episode and find those gems. The show opens uh, with a village that's been attacked by some figures that look a lot like uh, the Marys. Uh, they shoot burning arrows at huts, uh, they start killing uh, random people. But then uh, Marion and Much, uh, they show up and they enter the burning village and ask a woman who is responsible for the attack and she says, a gang of outlaws, Robin Hood and his men. And right before the opening tune comes in, we see another shot of the attackers carrying a pig, a pig on a stick um so and right after that we see the marys roasting a pig so um it appears to have been them attacking the village um so how do you like this opening is it one of those uh, gems already it's a hard opening isn't it? it's really brutal and it goes on again for a long time we've had other scenes in other episodes in the inheritance the attack in the village there this is very similar everything's on fire people are being mutilated attacked and for again we've said this so many times for a family audience at that kind of time of day it used to be broadcast it's I, I can't think of anything that would be broadcast like this now for a family audience they wouldn't let it through it's really shocking and i think as well because the opening's so wintry and it's so bleak and so yeah, yeah. kind of feels really raw and cold that's really different for robin and sherwood so i think from the outset it can kind of put you out of step with the series a bit you know we're very used to the green wood and beautiful sun sunshine and this opening is a million miles away from that it's very very hard but I quite like that I think it's very realistic it, it's gritty and I don't want Robin Assure to always be kind of you know in the sunny uplands 
this feels like real life and I'm a fan of those episodes in particular so for me I think it's a very strong opening and when you see those silhouettes you know the, the peasant woman says a curse on you Robin Hood and you're like oh this is a bit odd and then you see those silhouettes of those figures walking up the whole hillside taking the pig away I was totally you know me bit gullible I was totally <laughs> thought, oh, what have they done how what on earth's going on and that's a brilliant in the look on Marion's face it convinced me even more she's thinking this I am too like what on earth are they doing and that's a good strong opening I think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well I, I do agree um, that it's nice to have those winter episodes as well I mean it, it, it can't be uh, spring all year long so I, I like that um, I don't know if it's like an artistic choice to put those episodes in I mean uh, Adam Bell has the same mm -hmm. I think it had to do a lot with the fact that they had to produce more episodes in the same amount of time mm -hmm. so they had to start early um, and the woods weren't that green and um, the weather wasn't that sunny yet yeah. but uh, I, I like that just you know to, to make it more realistic and um, add some variation to the show but I don't really by for a second that Robin and, the, and his men have turned evil or anything like that and and that's a big problem for me uh, from the start of the show that I don't really I don't really uh, get convinced by this opening that oh something awful is, is going on I, I agree I kind of in my heart I know it's not them because that's not what they're like the outlaws would not do this so what is going on and I think if I have that mindset through the episode that I've, I'm kind of confused but I'm not convinced they did it from the outset um, but as a kid when I watched it I probably was even more puzzled now I'm I know of course it's not going to be them so who yeah. who's out to blacken their name as, as you know Robin says later on um, and that's a that's a great hook it's brilliant yeah. Yeah, well, I, I must admit I don't remember um, how I felt about it the fir very first time I watched this episode because I can't really remember that so may maybe I did buy into it then but now re-watching it it's a bit um, too obvious for me yeah yeah <laughs> I do I do like the fact that uh, uh, Nazir won't have a piece of the uh, the pig by the way Oh, it's really good characterization, isn't it? It's really important. Yeah. Um, anyway, then we cut to uh, the Sheriff Dorado uh, counting and storing the taxes that the king is coming to pick up uh, anytime soon. And uh, he's obviously nervous about uh, King John visiting. And he starts shouting at Gisborne and some other people who get in his way. And he also explains why uh, the king is bringing Roger de Karnak with him. And he says, the carnage would be a better name for him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the tension in this scene is brilliant, isn't it? The um, atmosphere in the hall, because the last time John came when he was um, announced as King of England, it went very, very badly for everybody concerned. And they just know that, you know, if King John descending on you, you don't have long to prepare. He moved around the country so frequently um, that he just kind of would turn up. Um, and you can tell by the chaos in the hall, Gisborne's face, the pressure and the tension of trying yeah. to be ready and make a great impression is really dragging them down. And um, I love that. It's brilliant. And is, is it also historically realistic that King John would just, you know, uh, turn up? Yes. Probably it, with a short 
time it, notice? It is actually. There's been a really interesting project um, over the last couple of years because it's been 800 years since the Magna Carta was sealed um, to look at all the, the letters from King John's reign. He's the first king of England who we have many written records for. Um, and it's possible, therefore, to track exactly where he is on a day-to-day -day basis. There is a brilliant Facebook group called King John's Letters, where um, a chap called Rich um, documents daily what, what letters John was issuing and where from. And maps have been produced, um, and interactive maps that show the speed that John travelled around the country. Some days he moved over 40 miles in a day on horseback, with the rest of his household following around. He never stayed anywhere apart from when he was at the Siege of Rochester um, for longer than, I think it's about four days. So this, this, he was a king who moved constantly all around the country because in a day when there were no, no television, no newspapers, you had to physically impose your rule on your country and he had to do that personally, particularly when he was having so much trouble with all his barons. So he had to move more, around more than most and make his presence yeah. known. So you could be in Nottingham Castle, being a royal castle in particular, they'd expect them to be more ready than say a baronial castle so he could just turn up his steward turns up and like you know and if you know by this afternoon the king's going to be here be ready i mean yeah. imagine the panic stations they would be at especially with our incompetent loons like dereno and gisburn in charge yeah <laughs> you just know they're going to be completely caught on the hop yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they do i mean um, the very next scene uh, the king arrives with a grumpy looking de Karnak. Mm -hmm. And um, the king's obviously trying to gain some popularity, handing out money and uh, to the people and, and kissing a young child. And uh, uh, he later tells the sheriff to give the food that has been prepared for him uh, to the poor because he's on a fast. And uh, he even turns down the girls that the sheriff has uh, arranged for him. Mm -hmm. So there's something out of character going on there as well. Yeah, that manipulation of the people is um, is very clear, isn't it? When John wipes his mouth after kissing the baby, that's you know he's up to something. Then it's not genuine. Um, and just can we just pause for one sec just to talk about how amazing Nottingham Castle looks? I think this is the best um, the best episode for giving you that impression of a medieval hall in a castle. The, the amount of candles, the amount of people, the costumes just where everybody is and, and when you watch how John's kind of processes down the hall how everyone moves around him he's centre stage and they all step back and I mean from a, a direction point of view and a writing point of view it's the tiny things that just thread you know threads in a really rich tapestry that makes you feel this is exactly what it was like this this it must have been just like this and again I can't think I've watched tons of medieval films some really really bad ones I am glad <laughs> Don't go near ironclad anyone. Um, and nobody builds an atmosphere and a scene like Robin of Sherwood does to give you that essence of medieval life and a court. It's it's tremendous. It's I could just keep watching it over and over again just for the details and the scenery. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, also, the shots from the castle, they're a nice contrast with... Uh, uh, what we see right after that, uh, which are the outlaws hanging around at their camp, eating the pig. Um, uh, Robin explains a bit about his life in Huntington Castle. Mm. Um, the others tease him a little bit. And uh, meanwhile, uh, we see March and Marion, who still can't believe Robin and the others really attacked uh, the village. Mm -hmm. And it then we come back to the king and he shows his true emotions uh, when he's alone with the Reno. 
and, uh, and Gisbert and the Karnak. And uh, he gets really upset with, uh, with the money that has uh, been lost. Yeah, it's uh, that little scene with them all sitting around stuffed to the gunnels, having eaten all that pig. Um, it's suddenly summer again, isn't it? It's one of those catch-up scenes that um, suddenly pop in and it's really, because this is such a wintry episode, it is a bit incongruous. But I again, it's one of those things I forgive because the scene is so brilliant with them interacting with each other and winding Robert up and how well he takes it. He doesn't mind... That's a real contrast with kind of how Huntingdon is to Loxley. I I don't think they could have ribbed Loxley very much. You know, there was that big, um, you know, you'll get too big for your boots line. Um, but really, in, in in the rest of the series, he's very kind of superior to the rest of the outlaws. Yeah. Whereas Robert's very much kind of one of the one of the lads. And they really wind him up. And I, I like that. I think it's really nice um, characterization. But it, it doubles down on that kind of suspicion that, what's going on you know when will talks about that woman's face and they all laugh and he you remember the pig you saw them saw someone like them carrying this pig away they've eaten a pig they're talking about it oh it's it's yeah. worrying and they're, but it's they're obviously not uh, enchanted or anything like that i mean yeah. we've seen that going on before so they're not under a spell that makes them do bad things or anything so it, it, it does add to the mystery here yeah yeah it makes you make definitely makes you worry doesn't it yeah. Um, meanwhile, the, the the king is uh, you know um, taking off his mask as soon as he's out of the out of sight of the people, mm-hmm. um, asking about the money. You know, where's the money? And then uh, the Reno immediately uh, turns to Gisborne. Well, Gisborne, where is it? I uh, <laughs> I really like that one. Yeah, it's great. That is, he totally drops him in it. Like nothing to do with me, Gov. It's all Gisborne's fault. And it's a really nice little note here because we're dealing with different writers of this episode, aren't we, as well? It's not Kit yeah. Horowitz. It's the only episode not written by them. I've completely forgotten their names, actually. Uh, but it's a double act. But there's a really nice note in there where he talks about the war in... King John talks about needing money for the war in Normandy. He doesn't say France. He says the war in Normandy. And that's really important historically. That is where it was going on. The French king, you know, Normandy was separate. And you could think for kind of an ITV family TV series, you could just say France and get away with it because no one would really care. But the attention to detail in Robin and Sherwood is always really, really important. So that made my ears prick up that they talk about Normandy. Here's another detail that I'd like your opinion about. Um, The king's soldiers, they have exactly the same outfit as uh, the sheriff's soldiers only in red does that make any sense here not really no um that uniforms uh kind of household uniforms weren't a thing certainly not for the sheriff he wouldn't have had kind of that blue um emblazoned tunic for his men he would just have they would have been kitted out what they needed to protect themselves and they might those surcoats only start coming in just around this period but they were usually in silk because they were used in the Holy Land to keep the sun off the um, the chainmail, which would obviously, you know, try and keep the heat off them. They only start becoming kind of a fashion statement thing towards the end of the 1200s. So quite a bit in advance. There were some kind of um, barding and tunics with with um, emblazons on them in the royal household, but it would have been just something on their shoulder, like a badge, rather than like this whole three lines across all their chests and that that starts coming in around this period on shields and on flags which were often actually metal they weren't um, on the battlefield they weren't necessarily these flowing banners that you see they would be kind of metal standards um but as 
this idea that you joined up as a soldier and they gave you a load of kit and that was you know what you wore isn't quite right because often um um troops or armed men only actually served for 40 days uh, that was their feudal responsibility and then they would go back to their normal lives so they would literally just turn up in like a padded jack um the chain mail would perhaps be provided and the weapon we've provided they didn't have any of their own which is you know hardly anyone had swords um but there isn't this big guard room like a kind of football soccer changing room with there you go there's your kit your boots well, yeah. yeah like that no so yeah good point well picked up yeah okay. okay well of, of course you know um from a storytelling perspective it makes total sense that uh, you need uh, to know who's who don't yeah. you yeah absolutely and then we can tell straight away ah that's a soldier uh, belonging to the sheriff that's one belonging to the king mm-hmm. um, um on the other hand uh, in the end they all belong to the king but uh Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. A- apart from that, um, after lashing out, uh, King John explains his own plan to undermine uh, the people's support for Robin. Uh, he tries to get uh, a better image for himself, and at the same time, uh, the Karnak will try to ruin Robin's reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's, here's, I think, the biggest I- issue I have with this episode. It's a quite a stupid plan, I think. <laughs> I mean, getting a better reputation for himself, sure, I, I can get it, get him on board with that. But having an imposter trying to ruin Robin's reputation? I guess they've tried everything else, haven't they? Um, and they know that they're only going to... I, I do agree with that point that they need the people's support and they need them on hand and they need them on their side. So maybe trying to undermine that. And again, it goes back to that, you know, in an age when there was no pictures, no television, you could kind of be an imposter, impersonate somebody. So, yeah, I kind of, I don't know why they don't ever try the greatest enemy plan just time and time again. down. That would be the obvious. But for for TV, it's really boring. We've seen that. So they've got to come up with something else. Yeah, Yeah. I I, I, I get that. But I had the exact same point in my notes. I mean, they have tried a lot of things to get rid of Robin Hood. One thing actually worked and they never do that again. <laughs> yeah, the magic of television though that is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but then, then again, maybe um, King John doesn't believe that it worked the first time around. Because really? he, said, uh, he says to the sheriff, um, you swore that he was dead. Yeah. And well, that the problem is... still isn't solved. So maybe he doesn't believe in it that much, but. That is really true. Um, and I, I do, I really enjoy this scene because you get a real glimpse of that legendary Angevin rage where King John does that on your knees. Oh, he's terrifying. For a little, small, slight, weaselly man, he's absolutely terrifying. You wouldn't mess with him at all. And I think it's that moment, really, that and the speech, the legendary speech that's later on in the episode, that got me fascinated with King John. He's so bad, he's good. He's so interesting. Um, he's absolutely, you know, diabolical. And he was in England so much. There's so much to learn about him. And I got to meet um, Phil Davis at the convention a couple of years ago. And it was just genius to see the man. And actually, physically, King John was dark, from what we know. He was dark-haired. He was quite short, so stature-wise, they were very similar. But every time I think about King John, it is Phil Davis who I see. I can't imagine anybody else. He's, he's just perfect. He's brilliant. Yeah, yes. it's a great performance. Also, I like that he doesn't show up too much mm. uh, in the series. Yeah. Because he, then, yeah. Uh, well, eventually it would lose its biggest impact, I think. Mm-hmm. They, they'd learn how to handle him, wouldn't they, if they 
saw him too often. And that's what's, you know, really entertaining is seeing them completely panic stricken whenever that he's around and not knowing what he's up to. And he's so many steps ahead of them. He's so sharp. And Dereno's sharp, but he's not as sharp as King John. And he's obviously desperate to hang on to his position all the time. He just just flings Gisborne under King John's kind of wheels all the time. Um, throwing out um, uh, under the bus is the expression. Yeah, I think. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Soon we, after that, we see that uh, um, King John's plan is already uh, working uh, because Will and John uh, walk uh, through the snow to a village called Duxford, uh, but they got sent away by a guy named Tom. And uh, when they tell that to the others, they seem really bummed out. And of course, uh, Will is immediately angry at the villagers. Mm. So, you know, undermining their position seems to be happening already. Yeah, I think this is, it's a really important scene. We're having a bit of conversation on the Facebook group the other day, actually, about this reaction and Will's frustration and why he just doesn't give up and go elsewhere and do something else with his life. Why he keeps, and you can see him questioning that, you know, why do we keep doing this when, we get rejected and it's so easy for people to undermine us. Um, it's a hard scene and it's, it, it fits with the weather. And it's, I like that gritty realism that Robin and Sherwood isn't always easy. It isn't always, you know, lying back in the, in Sherwood and, you know, being lauded as a hero. Sometimes it's, it was really, really hard for them and they weren't winning and they weren't successful and it could, they were on a knife edge. It was a, a difficult existence for them and they were they'd made massive sacrifices to do what they were doing to save other people and it wasn't always appreciated um and i like seeing the snow and you know that year it's very different to the rest of the series but um yeah i enjoy that scene yeah, yeah. and in the yeah. very next scene uh, it all comes together because we see a bunch of uh, merry lookalikes uh, attacking monks uh, they shoot one of them and deliberately letting the others get away to tell the abbot about what happened to you know, further um, destroy Robin's reputation, and uh, we also get a glimpse uh, of one of the imposter, and he's actually the Karnak himself. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Robin and his men find the wounded monk, and uh, uh, he notices that the monks haven't been robbed, and that they have been attacked by men using longbows. So there's a little um, puzzle for him to solve, and he wonders why this all uh, happens. And then the Zir finds the tracks of six men. And Robin instructs Will to escort the monk to the monastery. And he also tells Will that he's too hot-headed. Well, we've mm-hmm. seen that in action just uh, just a scene before that. Um, and Will is not happy with that decision, but he accepts it anyway. So at this point, uh, Robin's authority is still um, being respected, I suppose. Yeah, this, this is another example where perhaps the betrayal's wrongly screened in the series order. Perhaps it should have come much earlier because there is this still kind of um questioning about robert robert's leadership but at the same time it's a really nice callback to season one isn't it that one leader line that god has and i i think that's brilliant actually because it, it this episode the writing even though it's not kip it's really in touch with the history of the series it really understands king john's nature and his behavior and his characterization it really understands the tensions between you know what will's like and how hot-headed he can be and what a liability as well as a you know a resource he can be and how that's difficult for the leader the hooded man to manage you know when you look at those other episodes we've talked about like the inheritance that just kind of completely forgets what robin and Sherwood's about for a while this one really, um, is, is still really in touch with the threads of the last two series and for two new writers 
whether they were edits put in by Kip, I don't know. But just going on what we do know, I I think that's really important and, and it's well done. Um, and that that scene with them, you know, where John and Will come back from the village and they're really dejected. Um, Jason's brilliant there. You know, we talked about this again before about how criticism for his wooden acting and that kind of thing. These early episodes, he's really strong and that look of determination and conviction. He and the bit when he breaks the arrow, uh, oh, that's great. He's really strong. He's really, you know, he's really imposing his authority. And I, that's when I kind of was completely convinced by him as the next hooded man. These are the episodes that I really enjoy his performance in the most. Um, and as he gets to say a different line, he doesn't say two men that way. This time it's <laughs> men that way. <laughs> Which must have been a bit of a thrill for Mark Ryan at the time to say a different yeah. word. <laughs> I mean, he, he had to remember all those lines, right? So, <laughs> he remembered it wasn't two. <laughs> he just had to speak Arabic in, um, what's it called, uh, Crom Cruach. So. Yeah, yeah. He's like, Mister. you can't shut him up now, series three. Chatterbox. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we turn uh, to the perspective of Marion and Much, who are still a bit of a duo in this show. And um, they see Will and Tuck with the wounded monk and going through their stuff. So they really start to doubt their friends now. I'm, I'm not sure. I was thinking this yesterday when I was watching it. I think this must be the moment that Marion realises absolutely they've been set up. We don't see it on screen, but I think this must be when they see Will and Tuck with the monk. And we see it as a viewer, like they think they're seeing things again. But in the setup of the program, this must be when Marion and Much go down, talk to Will, find out what the heck's happening, join up with them again, and then go back and join up with Robin later on for the rest of the structure of the show to kind of fit properly. But it's, it is very powerful. And then we move into kind of that bit with the river, don't we? Um, again, some fantastic acting from Jason, yeah. some really yeah. good stuff. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's an interesting point you make because I always uh, took this little scene uh, to, uh, you know, uh, raise more doubt uh, uh, with Marion and much and also with us as, as, as viewers. Like, you know, what what's going on here? Are they really um, doing bad stuff now all of a sudden? I think that's what they're doing. That's what they're playing with the audience. But logically, that that's what Marion sees and then we don't see the next bit. That bit's kind of edited out to you know, so that the confusion and the mystery of the episode doesn't get resolved until a bit later. But logically, yeah. when you look back... And, and also, uh, King John just explained the plan. So if uh, we had to, uh, you know, get more exposition, we would have you know, basically um, the same uh, plot information over again, I think. Yeah, and, and Marion isn't stupid. You know, she's been out in the woods for, you know, years with these... Guys, she knows exactly what they're like, um, and that's. I think that must be her aha moment. This, you know, this is what's going on. Because why wouldn't she just go and walk down to Will and Tuck? Why wouldn't she approach them if she? Because she doesn't trust them anymore. Mm, but if, if I think Marion though, she if she didn't trust, she would call them out. She would say, "What, what on earth is going on?" I don't think she'd feel threatened by them. So she would go and and they would go, "Oh, hang on, no, we've just come yeah. across this." This is what's going on. This is what we think is happening. Um, or they would both share their stories from that day. We've heard this. We've heard that. 
then they would make yeah. the conclusion someone's trying to blacken our name. But we just well, don't. It, 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 it does make sense, especially uh, because a Tuck is there. Mm. I mean, uh, we've, yeah. we've seen Will um, turn bad once before, so mm. I can imagine that she would doubt Will, but Tuck, I mean, she knows him for such a long time. Yeah. He would never rob a monk. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly, yeah. 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 And um, then, like you said, we um, uh, have a look somewhere else in the forest uh, near the river um, where uh, Robin, John and Nazir, they see the imposters passing by. And now, uh, finally, uh, Robin understands the plan that's been plotted against him. Um, however, he does not want to attack the fake outlaws just yet. Instead, uh, uh, they follow them and that way they uh, uh, see them change back into their uh, red costumes of the king's guard so now it's all uh, now it's all clear to them yeah and that's important isn't it that robin he kind of asserts his authority and puts john in his place a bit and there's a lovely kind of kind of eye rolling moment between nazir and john where they're kind of like oh okay we've been told off here because they find out more information robert's right if they hang on and find out what and they need to know what's going on so they really know what they're up against and it leads them to that moment where they realize the king's in nottingham it's obviously he's obviously out to undermine them what can they do about it and i i was one of my favorite moments where where robert says not yet it's really you know it's it's, it's great it's, i don't know how anyone can criticize <laughs> that. that's brilliant brilliant acting those few scenes not wooden at all do you think we should address uh, john's hair or we're we just gonna <laughs> Leave that unspoken. <laughs> Old Doug the rug. Oh bless it! It's terrible, isn't it? It's really, really bad, and you can yeah. tell. You can tell how bad Clive feels. Clive knows he looks shocking. I don't know why they just didn't let him have short hair. Surely, they would have just because of the lice and bugs and goodness knows what they. You know, people you would used to sh you know shear their hair in summertime like you would to sheep, and he was a shepherd. I'm sure he would have just scalped himself occasionally because he'd had his hair cut for i think it was of mice and men that he was in in the west end so he got this really really short haircut you know give him a bandage and uh, throw in the story that he got his head injured something like that i mean anything would have looked better than this and and when you see the lengths that they go to for other costumes like dereno's costumes and and that's a point actually from the earlier scenes how um dereno and gisborne are wearing their their their, their sunday best they look absolutely on point everything's shiny gisborne's got about four cloaks on he looks fantastic and the, <laughs> but they just shove this old wig on poor old clive he must have felt yeah. a bit well done to I, I, I think they got a wig in the in the same store as where they bought the fake teeth uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, that we're gonna have to discuss later on uh, yeah oh dear, dear see they're very very good in robin's shoulder very very bad so then we uh, have a look uh, at the castle because uh, the king uh, is telling the people that he won't leave Nottingham before he has caught uh, Robin, uh, who of course he blames for terrorizing the people. And he also asks them to help the sheriff to capture the outlaws. Uh, the Reno tells the people uh, that they will be well rewarded if they provide uh, helpful information. And so this is like the next step of uh, King John's plan uh, of turning uh, the people against uh, Robin. Yeah, <laughs> that amazing line where John's, King John says, address the scum, and gets turns around and just calls everyone scum. 
And Be silence, you scum. <laughs> just when you think Gisborne's developing a bit and getting a bit of a brain, I think he's in such, just such a state of panic. It's <laughs> just come out of his mouth. Um, but there, there is also an amazing tracking shot um, through the hall at the start of that scene, as if you're somebody walking up to the, the dais to speak with the king or with the sheriff. And the amount of people that you weave through and it, the different costumes and the different types of people in that hall, again, it all layers on that fabulous atmosphere. And that that scene when um, that moment when Gisborne does insult everybody in there, um, actually, when he, there's a shot from behind him looking back down the hall, that's magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Um, and it, it's just worth watching just if you just pause on that scene for a moment and just think you could step into there and you would it would feel like medieval England, I'm sure. I absolutely love it. I love the moment with Gisborne, and I also love the fact that uh, the Reno doesn't really trust King John's plan because he feels the need to mention the fact that uh, the people will be well uh, rewarded if they mm. uh, if they help them find find Robin Hood. So just um, destroying his reputation isn't enough to turn the people against him because he believes in money and reward and buying people. That's more. true. And I, and I think he, he appreciates even more than the king how kind of loyal to Robin the people have been. And it's going to be a much harder task than the king assumes um, because they would have done it already if it was this easy. Um, so he kind of has to add another incent- level of incentive, doesn't he? Um, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. King John, of course, does believe in his uh, original plan. And... Um, it, it seems to be working and he sends the fake Marys uh, back into the forest again. Uh, but when they uh, dress up, uh, they I think by pure chance they do it right in front of Tuck, who's sleeping there all alone in the forest. That's that's a bit confusing to me. Um, I think this is again going back to that Marion must have met up with Much and Tuck and then they've all joined up back again and they, Much and Will, sorry, Tuck and Will, have taken Marion and Much back to Robin. They know all know the story. Um, and then they can tell Tuck where to position himself from the last time they saw them getting changed. Um, and that's why I kind of feel like Tuck's on lookout and that's why he's asleep. Because that's what he does. <laughs> be- be- yeah, because it's stuck. Okay. Yeah, I feel like he's been waiting for them. Yeah, that, that makes then, sense. I thought okay. Tuck was yeah. just having a nap on his own in the middle of the forest. So it was pretty... Oh, no. I think they're cleverer than that. I think yeah. they they know they know where to expect them. He's been sitting waiting because when he wakes up, he says, "Ah, they're back," doesn't he? So he knows mm. about. And until then, he hasn't been back with Robert and little John and Nazir. So they must have got together at some point to share the information, come up with their plan. And I think Marion and Much met up, joined up with Tuck and Will. Yeah, that that, that does make sense. Um, it's to work out though when none of that is on screen at all um, you just got to go on and see what you know about the Marys but I, I think that's how the jigsaw fits together yeah yeah I can I can see that now um, so when uh, the imposters uh, walk up to a village um, to basically kill everybody uh, Robin and the others they show up uh, to stop them they don't start to fight just yet there's a bit of uh, trash talk going on first <laughs> yeah yeah, and uh, then when they finally um, do start to fight, they all neatly pick their own like mirror match kind of thing. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a point that's been made over and over again, and uh, it makes a great visual, but uh, 
it's not very realistic now, is it? It, it isn't realistic at all. But if they hadn't done that, can you imagine everyone would be saying, oh, it would have been brilliant to see Little John fight Little John. And <laughs> I, you've got to do it. If you've got doppelgangers, that's the point of having doppelgangers is that you come up against your doppelganger. That That is the whole conceit, isn't it? That you fight your double. So I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm less fine with why the heck they chose to film it there in all that mud. It's like the bottom of a riverbed or something. I'm, I'm amazed none of them don't slip over more. And it just feels like a really bad choice to film it on that bridge. I get why, because it's yeah. going into Duxford, isn't it? But, oh, man, it must have. Perhaps they were up against, you know, filming schedules and the rain had come down and they just, it had stopped raining and the sun's out. Let's get on with it. But, man, it's muddy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, it's quite a long uh, fight that, uh, that they have. Mm. Um, of course, uh, the real Marys defeat the fake ones. Robin uh, kills the Karnak in the fight. And uh, luckily the villagers all uh, came uh, to watch the fight and they immediately understand that they've been deceived. Yeah. Here, here's a bit of a problem that I'm having with, the, with this episode. This should have been like the big reveal and, mm. big, you know, uh, solving the mystery and, and, and coming back to terms with, with the villagers and defeating the, the, the Karnak and the, and the fake outlaws. But we're maybe just about halfway through the episode i think mm, yeah it, it, and it's a bit it's a bit underwhelming really isn't it you know yeah. and all of a sudden they realize what the problem is and they've solved it immediately because there's yeah. kind of second storyline to follow and um i think the the episode underran by quite a lot anyway which is why we get some additional scenes later on yes but if this scene had been extended or there'd been a chase maybe or, you know, Dekarnak tries to escape and they go after him and hold him up somewhere. Or he tries to evade them. It's just very kind of bish, bash, bosh. And then his death is quite ignominious. It's quite, it's quite boring, really. He just gets a yeah, slash yeah. in the box and keels over and Robin kicks him into the mud and, you know, yeah. dust yeah. hands off and we're on to... Basically, they could have ended the episode here. I mean, have one more shot of uh, King John being angry because his plan failed and then, you know throw in the tune and uh, see you all next week. It needs some more complication, doesn't it? It needs um, a bit more, you know, some, the, either the stakes need raising a bit or there's some bigger risk that's revealed and, you know, or they can't kill the Karnak for some reason or, or like I say, he just runs off or there's some, or he captures, you know, Robin gets, the Karnak gets the better of Robin and the outlaws have got to rescue Robin or something. You could have yeah. stretched yeah. Or, or, it. Or maybe uh, the outlaws would attack the Karnak and his men when they were still in their red king's uniforms mm -hmm. and then uh, they are almost winning and then the villagers show up and they decide to help out the soldiers because they're yeah. so afraid of Robin and his men. Yeah. Something like that. That's a good. That would be really cool, wouldn't it? And they've got the outlaws. Then have to kind of defend themselves to the villagers. And yeah, I'd like that. It would. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It's a bit. Ooh, it's not very kind of um, meaty part of the episode when it's absolutely one of the key, the main climax, isn't it? So, yeah, and I mean, yeah. this, is, this basically should be what the episode is about. And, you know. mm. There's too much conversation about pigs as well. That seems to. It feels like the dialogue got a bit clever for itself was enjoying having a bit of banter between the two groups and we're going on about pigs again i kind of yeah, think we care about that. i know yeah yeah that's an insult to, to, pigs. to pigs yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's had a bit more plot, a bit more plot. Yeah, maybe. because now they basically have to, you know, um, uh, start a complete new um, uh, storyline. Mm. I mean, uh, sure enough, they have already mentioned uh, the, the the tax money because that's basically the only thing left to do: get back the tax money. Uh, so that that's like the second half of the episode is is about that in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, and of, of course, uh, King John is furious with the uh, uh, conflicting information the people have provided. I mean, if we would have, uh, you know, got this episode short, we wouldn't have gotten this great, great scene of him ranting. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the best scenes in the whole series. It's, it's quite comical in a way, but life sometimes is. Um, <laughs> you know, you just know they, they probably did it on purpose. You know, they didn't even, you know, the people, the scum, didn't even have to collaborate or consult each other. They were just all on Robin's, Robin Hood's side. Yeah. And they just present this massive, massive yeah. misinformation, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the moment I picked from this uh, episode. So uh, let's have a listen to it first and then talk a bit more about it. Dereno, your scribes have set down more evidence than in the Doomsday Book. Utterly incredible. It's a conflicting mass of misinformation. Robin Hood is tall, short, stocky, slight, dark, fair-bearded, clean-shaven. This one insists that he's a dwarf. A dwarf. And where do we find him? In a cave. Down a well, up a tree, near Wickham, Daxford, Ashley, Haverton, etc., etc., etc. Imbeciles! Is there no one in this godforsaken shire who can lead me to him? I can, my liege. And that was uh, Marion, we heard there uh, at the end of the scene, stepping forward to uh, to help out uh, King John to capture Robin. Mm -hmm. It's a nice play on the theme of betrayal, isn't it? In this scene, we learn that the people will never betray Robin. And we know from the look on Marion's face that she's pretending to betray him. But we all know she would never do that. Yeah. Um, and this, this, you know, it's kind of a play on the king's attempts to betray the reputation of Robin Hood. So there's a lot of, um, you know, plays on that theme in this scene. I enjoy that. Yeah, true. I mean, I love the line. Uh, this one insists that he's a dwarf. I mean, it's very, very <laughs> Who doesn't? Who? Which Robin Sherwood fan does not quote that often? Um, or the one up a tree in a cave down yeah. a well. <laughs> what, what, what I do find strange is that um, he needs uh, descriptions of, of, of Robin Hood when they all perfectly know what Robert of Huntingdon looks like. Oh, I mean, yeah. Why, why would they have to ask about that? I mean, wh where his camp is, something like that. Sure, I, I, that's the yeah. useful information they need. But what he looks like, why, why would they have to ask the people that's that? That's true, but I guess it, it just adds to the the scene. But also, maybe King John doesn't. King John may never have met Robert and um, does not trust, obviously, any word that comes from the sheriff. Um, he's not a reliable source of information. That's why he's had to come and gather it himself. So in that gathering exercise, they, they found out that he's 
tall, short, light, lean, yeah. blonde, dark yeah. hair. I, I also love the moment where he smacks Gisborne with his, uh, with his scroll. <laughs> yeah. Almost knocks a candle off the table. Oh, that's perfect, doesn't it? How it wobbles and the yeah. and then I think the the flame goes out. Oh, it's magic. It's just the characterization. It's just something you don't see in in shows these days to that level. I don't well, think. It, it, to me, it feels like uh, parts of it are are improvised. You know, when he just gets into his anger mode, he just starts lashing out uh, left mm-hmm. and right, and you know, I think that's when moments like this happen. Or of course, it's really well acted, but uh, um, details like the candle, um, I think that oh. they couldn't have, um, you know, uh, written that in there. Or, no, not you know, at all. Deliberately, like, like there are, I don't believe that there are like five shots of this scene that they didn't use with the exact same thing happening. No, you get a feeling like they did that once and um, they, they just ran with it and that Phil Davis was just kind of riffing on the script. I asked him actually at the con, you know, what he knew about King John and had he done much research and he was like, I've got to confess, no I didn't, I just had a really good script, I knew he was bad tempered and just went for it, Um, but from historically what we know about John, he flew into these wild rages, it was a kind of feature of his father, Henry II was very similar, and he couldn't be reasoned with and he would just be pure like eye popping vein bulging rage and and he does look a bit daft in the crown i always think he looks a bit silly with his crown wedged on like that but um it's a fan, fabulous scene it's one of my favorites the whole series yeah it's great yeah. well it's very brave of marion to uh, step forward like this and and uh, try to betray the king uh, the way she does yeah but, but she managed to um uh, to convince him that she's uh, uh uh, has switched sides. Uh, she explained that she's disappointed in Robin because he started Robin for himself and killing for pleasure. And then um, um, Gisborne and the sheriff, of course, they don't trust Marion, but uh, King John does. So um, it, it does work out for Marion this far. Yeah, this far it does. She's in total control here. It's it's so brilliant to see Marion back on form, to see her not being a, a device in the plot. She's driving the plot here. And, um, you know, she's totally true to her character. She would never betray Robin, not unless, you know, it had been proved to her that he'd really gone bad. And he clearly has, and he's Robin Hood. Um, and, she, and for once, she hasn't actually been captured. She's in Nottingham Castle, but she went there of her own free will. It changes later on. But at this moment, she's in control. She's walked in there. She's got them all in the palm of her hands. And um, it's the Marion we kind of know and love, and she's back on screen. I, I, I was so yeah. pleased to see her. Yeah, finally, because uh, the, the king totally buys her story, and he sends uh, Gisborne and his red soldiers uh, with her into the forest. And, well, I think we are supposed to believe that Marion really sold out uh, Robin uh, when she leads uh, the soldiers uh, to some sleeping men. Um, I think, but I'm yeah. not quite sure. Yeah, I, I think the show gives the audience credit here. Um, you know, we don't have to have everything telegraphed and laid out and set out for us. The show's going, look, you know, we're halfway, over halfway through series three. You know what everybody's like. You know what they're in this for. Come on, you know that this is, you know, this is all a, a trick. Um, and you're kind of on the inside a little bit. Um, you know, you can see how pleased that Marion looks when they've taken the bait. 
you know, and the pro, the show's asking the audience to pick up on that yeah. and run yeah. with it. So, um, yeah, you you know she's part of the plan. I think that's really obvious. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah. I, I suppose Absolutely. you're right. Um, and then we find out that the sleeping men in the forest are actually uh, the fake Marys. Um, but then for some reason, Gisborne and the soldiers are now lost in the forest. I don't really know how that works. <laughs> it always happens. That's just how it is. The forest's on the outlaw side. It always is. Um, it's their territory. And he just gets lost because he's terrible and there were no maps. Yeah. So maybe that's why. And he's, Maybe and he should bring a breadcrumbs or something like that to leave a trail. And he's just hopeless. It's Gisborne. Um, I really like that um, nighttime scene. Um, you know, we don't often see them at night. It looks really, really impressive, apart from the flaming torches. Because, A, I have this thing about flaming torches, which all credit must go to the um, the archaeologist who does some fantastic YouTube videos, a guy called Lindy Beige, who kind of rips historical films and stuff to pieces. It's fantastic. Um, and he, he made the point years ago about... You know, whatever castle or scene in a medieval film, there's always blazing torches like on the walls. But who's keeping those lit? It's not like you know, like corridor lighting. And the same when they all go out with them. You know, you don't. Your eyes adjust. It's it's clearly a moonlit night. You don't need a whole like flanks of flaming torches to light the way. And B, they would have seen them coming. It kind of spoils the, you know, it's not stealth, is it? You know, creeping up with all these. Like a bonfire lighting your way, so but it, it looks amazing though. Given that, um, so apart from that, I, I like the nighttime. It adds to the subterfuge and the creepiness and the sneaking about. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's true. Never never thought about those uh, torches in that way, but it's, you're absolutely right. Um, so then we see uh, Robin and his men uh, dressing up as uh, soldiers because they want to enter the castle to get back the tax money. Uh, but I don't know that Marion is there as well because he's, you know, she's been sent um, back to the castle. Mm -hmm. Nice moment that Robert in uniform. Get the fan out. <laughs> I had that poster on my bedroom wall for years. Really? Of him. Yeah, him in the Carnax uniform, yeah. And a really dodgy sword, but yeah. yeah. Do you still have the poster? Yeah, it's in a folder now. It's not on my bedroom wall, but I've still got the poster. Who hasn't? Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, then there's a great moment by March because he realizes uh, what, what, what's going on and he um, uh, rushes to the castle to tell the others it's great to see that isn't it much being assertive and when he says take care of him I mean, that's really serious he's basically telling to murder murder this soldier get rid of him do him in and the much we saw in series one and two would never ever have been in that position and would never have ever made that suggestion he was too innocent so it really shows how forest life being an outlaw has hardened him but also that he's matured and he's making decisions and in charge of things and um i'd love to have seen more of that in another series he you know he's the next generation isn't he really so um it's brilliant to see much like that yeah it's it's, it's true it, it, it also shows that it was a really really risky plan i mean what was Marion's uh, exit strategy apart from riding with the soldiers into the forest? There isn't one, is there? Really, they're just relying on their wits that she would manage to get away, or there's a, you know, there's a rope dangling somewhere that she can, you know, jump up into a treetop and get away. It's not very, not very likely, though, is it? Not in an episode 
that is very gritty and relying on realism a lot in this episode. So, um, yeah, it is very risky. It's very, especially because uh, they're only doing it to get the tax money. I mean, they don't have to risk their lives to save um, other people's lives. It's just mm. about money. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're not trying to save someone's life, are they? It's um, a huge, a huge stretch. But maybe they feel they've got to prove themselves again and reestablish that kind of bond um, yeah. and show people that they, you know, they're, they are he- because the tax money really did affect people's you know that was people's lives um, and they would have, the villagers would have been at risk I guess yeah, perhaps um, so then we see uh, Marion uh, who has been taken uh, back to the castle um, because the king uh, wants her for his own pleasure and, um, after she's been bathed uh, they go to his chambers and uh, to buy herself some time uh, Marion proposes a game where she will pretend to be disgusted by him and uh, the king must stay calm and respond with gentle words. How do you feel about this scene in this game? I feel sick. <laughs> it's how I feel. He's absolutely gross, isn't he? Oh, and, and the bit earlier in the scene in the in the hall where he sort of sniffs her hair. Ugh, disgusting. And he's all over her like a rash. And you can see Marion thinking, oh, this is, oh how am I going to get out of this? He licks his lips and oh, I feel terrible for her. So when she comes up with this idea of the game, you're like, yes, she's gonna, she's gonna sort him out here. And they, we talked about this in the inheritance episode about the 1980s and a bit about you know control and power and women using their own agency to get out of situations. She, you know, she saves herself here. She comes well, up with this. Well, well, she does she, escape, all all, all but, she does is buy buy some time. Well, she has no way of knowing that. Um, help is actually uh, on its way I mean true but she's using her own independence and her own agency to try and do something about it because she doesn't know there is somebody you know coming up the stairs to try and help her she's presumably going to try and slip away and escape but she's doing it herself and I think that's so important to see on screen you know you look at um, modern TV dramas and modern films there is a lack of that it doesn't happen enough um, unless you know, the woman involved is some kick-ass heroine with a sword. All yeah. other types of women have to be a victim, it seems. Whereas in this episode, Marion's trying to save herself. And I want to see more of that all the time. And it was great that we had writers in the 80s who did that. And I, I personally really, really appreciate that. I think it's really important. And the fact that she gets to kick the King of England in the shins. <laughs> yeah, hurrah. Um, I just think it's 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 really important. Yeah. Yeah. But still, but still I, I feel the scene is a bit awkward. And it goes on a bit too long. Yeah, it's awkward because it's an add-on, isn't it? This is the scene that had to be written in to extend the show. It is that, but it's funny. And Marion's got the upper hand, more or less. And he's really, and King John's really suffering. Which, um, knowing the suffering that he kind of imposed on other people, you want to see him getting a bit of his own medicine. Um, so yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, uh, we see uh, Robin and the others uh, have taken the tax money, and uh, uh, much gets uh, uh, caught by soldiers. But luckily, they r- run into the outlaws, so they can uh, knock out the soldiers and, and uh, give much the opportunity to tell them uh, that Marion is in the castle. Then uh, Robin sneaks into the uh, the king's bedroom just in time. And then, uh, well, together they jump out of a window onto a cart filled with hay, and uh, they uh, they 
get out of the castle and uh, ride uh, back to safety. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> I really, really like this moment. I love Robert's face when he kind of peeps through the bed curtains and sort of kind of, oh, God, what's going on here? Um, what have you, what have, I can't decide whether he's thinking he's jealous or he's thinking kind of what's Marin got involved in here. Oh, man, I'm just here in the nick of time. Um, and he looks he looks lovely. Um, and we've had a really nice moment of him being, you know, I'm Roger de Karnak, here to see the king. Again, great acting, really powerful, really, really strong. Um, so I think he performs brilliantly in this episode. And also, this is my favourite music. This whole scene um, where they jump from the window and they get in the car and they're leaving the castle. And it's the only um, incidental music in series three that isn't available on the DVD or the Blu-ray. as a separate file. And it's my favourite. And I've been asking around for years if anybody knows a way or can send me or can isolate that that piece of music. I'd, I would pay you for it, honestly. I love it. It's, it's it's used in The Pretender as well and a couple of other episodes, but it just you cannot listen to that separately like you can lots of the other Series 3 music. So, yeah, drop us a line if anybody knows. I'd be so grateful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's um it's a lovely um you know it's we're back to usual territory there the outlaws are attacking well it's only Robert actually attacking the castle because presumably all the soldiers are off with Gisborne um um and we've had much to the rescue and there's a lovely shot of him on horseback coming through the water in the moonlight as he's racing towards the castle to um, give them the news that Marion's been in there some lovely cinematography there. And the whole conquest thing and Marion stalling. I think it's great. It's really, it's good fun. Um, yeah. It's, it's also good uh, fun, I think, to see the king being uh, in his bed shouting for Marion and then the <laughs> sheriff finds him. Yeah. He, uh, he's once again furious, of course, and uh, he even breaks that nice looking uh, musical instrument. Yeah, I think it's a lute, isn't it? And it just <laughs> the noise it makes when the strings break. It's, it's proper high comedy. Um, but another historical the beds really, really historically accurate. Um, beds were um, movable things. So the king would have brought that bed with him when he came to Nottingham and taken it around. It was made out of planks that could be, and ropes that could be very quickly disassembled and moved on on the back of a cart. Um, but all the hangings, and it's quite small, it's quite narrow, and it's quite rounded in the middle. They've got some great replica beds at some um, National Trust in English. There's a really good one, actually, at Little Morton Hall, and they let you lie on it. It's really comfy. Um, so just, again, details in Robin of Sherwood. You know, in, if it was Game of Thrones or it was, you know, the Hollow Crown or something, it might be some iron thing or massive four-poster bed. But it's not. It's small. It looks it looks movable. Um, and it, it just layers the details on the scene all the time. Let's have a listen to that final uh, scene and uh, that, that moment between uh, Robin and Marion because uh, you selected it as your uh, favourite moment from this episode. Mm -hmm. I like your dress. Goes with your eyes. That's what the king said. Did he? Are you jealous? <laughs> jealous? No. Yes. It's such a sweet exchange, isn't it? You know, um, he's so 
innocent and naive and I, I like that in a hero that you know he he's not sure he deserves Marion's affection and she's um more confident now in their relationship and she teases him a bit you know that's what the king said and are you jealous and he said no and then when he turns back and says yes oh it oh it makes your heart <laughs> if you're a romantic soul like I am it really really does and I we, 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 here's something that might spoil the romance in this moment just a little bit I was okay. re-watching this, uh, this episode and uh, uh, my wife was uh, watching along with me and, and in, after this uh, scene she said yeah that's what you do after you almost get raped kiss another guy <laughs> yes that's, that is very true I can um, <laughs> give your, your, your wife credit for that you wouldn't really feel very for romantic cynicism yeah, well, yeah, you wouldn't be in a romantic mood, but maybe also at the time, you know, the high energy, they both escape, so get a bit carried away. Um, and I like, I like the rest of it. I just think it's uh, it, it's odd, though, because earlier we were talking about perhaps this episode should be earlier on in the series because the winter and all that kind of thing. And there is always that um, kind of myth of Robin and Sherwood that if Marion's wearing blue, she's in yeah. mourning for Loxley, which is clearly, clearly not here. And in the Cross of St. Syracuse that we've talked about before this episode, she's in green and is clearly in mourning for Robert, uh, Robin of Loxley. So that kind of theory doesn't stand up, I don't think. I think if you look at the idea that series three goes over two winters, this could be the second winter that yeah. they're, they're experiencing. Yeah. And Marion, by this point, is feeling more settled and has developed a kind of emotional connection with Robert. You know, he kisses her, but she's led, she's kind of said, you know, now's our moment. Yeah. And they, they, they get to share a yeah. little moment. It's lovely. Yeah, true. Yeah. So any, anything uh, left to say about uh, about the betrayal? I think it's it's one of those lighter episodes. I don't understand the, the grief it gets from people. I mean, people really hate it. <laughs> I really, really despise it. Um, and I think compared to episodes like Alan and Dale or The Inheritance, there's lots to love in this. King John steals the show. Um, it's always fantastic to have him in an episode, and this is his highlight. Um, you need these lighter episodes. We can't have any everything being missed and mysticism all the time, or their lives being threatened. You need that kind of counterpoint in a long series, and this, the betrayal, does its job in that regard. And there's again some lovely, lovely character moments. It looks beautiful. I, I enjoy, really, really enjoy it. Actually, I'm a big cheerleader for the betrayal. Yeah, you you do a really, really great job at it. Like I said, it was one of my least favorite episodes. Then I rewatched it again. I thought, well, it's not that bad. And now after talking to you, I think, well, it's pretty good. <laughs> I'm not in fear. I'm even reconsidering in my head uh, uh, at this moment the amount of errors I'm going to award it. Because I oh. thought this was going to be my one arrow episode. No. Then I rewatched it and I thought, no. oh, it deserves two. And now I'm even hesitating between a two and a three. Oh. But I, th I think I'm gonna have to um, stick to my uh, two arrows as a score for this one. Um, oh. But it's a, it's a strong two now, so it's it's it, I'm, I'm getting there. Oh well, I, I'm I'm pleased with that. At least I, I've, I've edged you up the scale a bit. For me, it's going to be a four. Four, really. Four, because because of King John. I mean, he's a, he's one of the very very best characters in the whole series. The dialogue's excellent, the play off on each other's characters is great. 
I like the jeopardy. I like the idea that not everything's always rosy in Sherwood. And I like the kiss at the end. So for me, there's enough there for a four. Thanks. Okay, so well, that still makes an average of a three out of five. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty good yeah. for, like you said, an episode that uh, isn't uh, very popular amongst the, amongst the fans. So yeah. I'll work on everybody else later. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, well, I think uh, you've already done that because, well, of course, tons of, pe of people are listening to this and they will all change their opinion. And... <laughs> They'll all argue with me on Facebook later, that's what <laughs> yeah. happened. <laughs> so, um, that's it for this time. So, Steph, uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, podcasting with me once again and changing my uh, opinion a bit for the better. Thanks for having me. It's been ace, ace chatting again. As always, I want to thank uh, Bram Brouwers for playing our theme music. Uh, next time we will uh, discuss Adam Bell and uh, you can make sure that you don't have to miss that by subscribing to this podcast or by liking us on facebook.com slash Podcast. Uh, if you want to uh, comment on the podcast or argue with Steph, uh, please send an email to Sherwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And for now, thank you for listening and may Hearn protect you. What?